This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. It was the media industry story of this year, the boss of our biggest news publisher buying the company off its unwilling Aussie owner for just $1. This week, Media Watch asks Sinead Boucher where is she taking stuff now that it's all hers. And in the weird year that was 2020, stuff wasn't the only media outfit returning to local ownership. In fact, we've now got more independent and locally owned news outlets than we've had for years. So how did that happen, and is it a good thing? Oh, my God, this is really now looking quite bad. If you look, you know, what's happened with the media companies, you know, a lot of them are making losses. They're not paying dividends. It really, uh, you know, looks that this ecosystem or news ecosystem we have is on the verge of collapse. Maybe it's too strong thing to say, but I really feel like it. That was Dr. Meria Mililati, a lecturer at the Auckland University of Technology's School of Media and Communication, talking to Media Watch 12 months ago after the publication of the annual New Zealand Media Ownership Report, which is compiled by the AUT's Media Scholars and Teachers at its Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy. And that wasn't an especially good forecast for 2020. Now at that time, our biggest media companies were in a state of flux, and it wasn't at all clear how many of them would still be in business by now, or who might be in charge of them. For example, TV and radio broadcaster MediaWorks had announced that it wanted to get rid of its loss-making TV channels, including three and its news hub operation. But it wanted to hold on to half of the country's commercial radio stations, though, because they make good money. Meanwhile, the owner of the other half, NZME, the company which also publishes the New Zealand Herald, was doggedly trying to take over Stuff, its big rival in newspapers and online news. And Sky TV had just sold a stake in itself to New Zealand Rugby, which was something of a world first. And then state-owned broadcasters RNZ and TVNZ had just discovered that the government wanted to replace them with one single public broadcasting beast. Now what Miriam Mililati didn't know then, just like everybody else in the media, was that COVID-19 was just around the corner. During the nationwide lockdown between April and June, news media were deemed an essential service, but their essential income, advertising, dried up almost overnight. Commercial companies cut pay, staff and output to reduce costs, not knowing when, if ever, conditions would ease. And the German-owned company Bauer Media then closed down most of our major magazines to try and offload them to new owners, and it even asked the government to take them all off its hands for a dollar. Now, at the time, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said she was gutted by the loss of the mags, but the government didn't want to own any more of the media than it already did. And at that time, it looked like Bauer's many magazines wouldn't be the only casualties of the media's COVID crisis. However, since then, things have gone a bit better than many dared hope, and taken an unexpected turn. Back in May, Stuff's chief executive Sinead Boucher persuaded her Aussie bosses to sell the company that it didn't want to her for $1, bringing the company's biggest and only truly national news publisher back on shore for the first time since 2001. And we'll have more on that with Sinead Boucher later in this programme. But that was only the start of a shift to local ownership in 2020. Later on in the year, the private equity firm Mercury Capital brought back the likes of the New Zealand Woman's Weekly, Women's Day and The Listener, all of them now back in print. And new local owners picked up other magazines that were burned off by Bauer Media, like Metro, North and South and Fashion Quarterly, and they've all got those up and running too in recent weeks. And some of the editors, writers and executives made redundant by Bauer back in April have banded together to launch four brand new magazines under the banner of School Road Publishing. 
And while sceptics had said good luck with that when MediaWorks tried to sell those TV channels in the post-COVID climate, the company did swap one offshore owner for another. It did a deal with the global broadcast giant Discovery, which last week officially took over the TV business. Well, this year, the AUT's media ownership report for 2020 points out we now have more independent media outlets than we've had for 10 years. So this week I asked the report's lead author, Dr. Miriam Elilati, this seems like good news, but is it? Now it is literally that we have more independent and it's quite unique. Uh, we have a couple of uh, private equity uh, owned companies and then, of course, a couple of uh, commercial uh, players. But yeah, more independent than ever before. I suppose there's a slight downside, though, in that, um, I mean, these are smaller businesses. So, for example, where we had Bauer Media, when they closed down, almost 250 jobs were lost. Uh, the new company, which is onshore and independently owned, which, you know, sounds good, but it employs, I think, just between 40 and 50 people. Yes, uh, they are. And and uh, remember that, you know, also the Bauer Media is now owned by the private equity company. The jobs which uh, have been created since, uh, you know, haven't actually, uh, of course, compensated for those all uh, job losses. And as a whole in the media sector, we saw like 620 plus uh, jobs uh, going this year. So I think it would have been quite brutal without the government uh, wage subsidy. MediaWorks, TVNZ, NZME and stuff, they, four of these, uh, received uh, $24 million from that uh, same government uh, wage subsidy. Um, but there's an irony here in a way, isn't it, that they receive that not because of the importance of the work they do, but because they're employers. Yeah, same goes with the staff. If you think of a staff is employing 900 people. So uh, uh, remember that there were also the smaller outlets also got some money from that uh, the same uh, waste subsidy scene. In the end, we end up with, as you say in the report, New Zealand now has more independently and privately held media companies than ones owned by shareholders or the crown-owned uh, media entities like you know RNZ or TBNZ. But you point out in the report that for all of that, New Zealand media is still, as you put it, transnational and highly financialized. Uh, what exactly do you mean there? Think about what happened with the MediaWorks. So the MediaWorks was now, um, or its television arm was taken over by Discovery, which is a massive entertainment uh, corporation based in uh, USA. So that is still, we have at elements of the transnational ownership. Uh, and then if you Think about NZME and Sky Television, for example. They are owned uh, by shareholders, and most of those shareholders are financial institutions. So that hasn't completely gone away. So we still have these commercially uh, uh, commercial uh, media outlets owned by shareholders, but the bulk of the you know companies are smaller, independent, uh, independently owned uh, media companies. But but in terms of discovery, though, Maria, I mean, this was celebrated uh, by the employees. They thought, ah, we have an actual you know media company with real resources and clout and heft, picking it up from you know what had been a. Uh, a, a private equity company that you'd think might not care that much about it, surely that would be a better thing for the people that work at MediaWorks and at the end the, the people that watch those TV channels and don't want them to disappear. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying that, you know, the, you know the, definitely I think, you know, the, the media, if it's owned by the Media Entertainment Corporation, uh, it's, of course, better than any private equity uh, corporation. Uh, I'm not uh, against that. And it's great if you see that, you know, some of the news hub and those jobs are maintained. 
Uh, saying that, uh, the, the Discovery has said that they're combining Australian and New Zealand operations. And, and we still don't know how that's going to happen and what's going to happen there. Uh, but we've also seen during the COVID crisis that the smaller ones, um, independently owned, have proved uh, resilient. They're still in business. So, for example, there's Allied Press is a big one, publisher of the Otago Daily Times and newspapers in the Lower South Island. Um, there's the digital startups, the likes of uh, Business Desk, the Crux, uh, service based in Queenstown, which we heard about recently on MediaWatch, uh, National Business Review, which is now an online-only uh, subscriber uh, led and funded operation. There's Newsroom, there's Scoop, which has been in business now for, uh, I think, about 15 years. Um, and the spin-off, uh, six years old now and getting more of its money from uh, members as well as sponsors. Uh, there are a lot of elements, of course, there in a, in a play, but uh, they are smaller and they have that kind of mixed model. Uh, they get revenue from uh, the reader revenue and then they get revenue from uh, sponsors, for example, Newsroom and Spinoff. And um, I think in a cases like you know, the business desk, I know that their reader revenue has actually been going up really substantially. I said in a report that um, there are kind of three uh, key elements there that, you know, you have the reader revenue, you have a government support, and then you have a Google. Yeah, that is another fascinating part of the report, which you've highlighted. Uh, you said in 2020, it's emerged that Google uh, was more involved in the New Zealand media scene than was previously the case. Now, the the big picture thing about Google and indeed all those large digital platforms is that they have never wanted to be involved in the business. They've never wanted editorial responsibility. They never wanted to put money directly into news. Um, do you sense now uh, that they've seen COVID as, as an opportunity to tell the world that they're actually uh, supporting media in a more fundamental way? Well, there's a good op opportunity to uh, gain goodwill, you know, uh, when you access giving some relief funding for small outlets. But if you put it in context and look at, for example, how much advertising revenue they get in, in the New Zealand market and how much actually they put the money to the support uh, these companies. Uh, and uh, some of the privately, some of the media companies, they don't uh, say this uh, in public, but privately they say that uh, they have actually been quite pleased with the Google, that it has actually uh, given them some you know, valuable tools like a subscription, uh, enhancing their subscriptions and things like that. The problem we have with Google and Facebook is, of course, and we all talk, always talk about this, that is the transparency and transparency of what they're actually doing. So uh, that was surprising that Google actually uh, wrote that New Zealand blog. They funded 76 uh, Pacific media outlets from that uh, COVID relief funding. So, yeah, they're doing something. They're showing some willingness. But remember, at the moment, the Google and Facebook are doing a lot of things in a lot of different markets. Uh, because the regulatory pressure is building up. But what else uh, is on the horizon if we look forward? I mean, for example, um, initially as the crisis hit, the advertising plummeted for all these companies. You know, they were talking about 50, 70 percent declines and not really knowing how that would shake down at the end of the year, how long the crisis would last. What do you think has been the, la the, the lasting impact of that initially catastrophic uh, reduction in revenue, which I, I guess now is evening out a bit as the economy bounces back? I don't think the advertising revenue on advertising is the answer nowadays. I'm I'm a big believer in the building up that reader revenue uh, model. And but of course, 
that on its own might not be enough for smaller media outlets, for example. I oh, but even the bigger ones, though, media, I mean, the stuff company still depends financially oh. upon, you know, old-fashioned ads and print and its papers, which are declining in circulation year on year. Television New Zealand, you know, relies on pulling in something in the region of $300 million a year in, in adverts. Yeah, you're right. And in the past, and in traditionally, the, of course, the print newspapers have been, you know, dependent on mainly on the uh, advertising revenue. And uh, in the case that stuff is, uh, you know, a lot of that, um, their revenue come from that side. However, I think, you know, there have to be a couple of things uh, happening with the staff and they have to uh, reduce workforce, that's for sure. Uh, they have 900 people uh, working for the company. It's not uh, sustainable. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, also, the advertising revenue, I don't think that's going to sustain them. They will introduce, and I'm pretty sure, some sort of revenue model, reader revenue model, whatever that is. Uh, is it the memberships or donations or are they going to put some paywalls for their documentaries or something, they they really need to do something there. This year, or sorry, next year, 2021, TVNZ and Radio New Zealand, what happens uh, with that merger? Is it going to go through? Yes, your report makes it clear that some of these big decisions like that one also are kind of ongoing I think for two years, review of the Māori media sector just hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, These things, of course, all put on hold with COVID, I suppose. But how much do you think it would change the whole media scene if if RNZ and TVNZ do become replaced with some yet-to-be-scoped media entity? It depends on what the funding model of that new entity would be. So uh, is it, you know, going to be partly advertising funded or is it going to be funded by the public or we don't know that, you know, the funding structure and that determines quite a lot, you know, what the impact might be in that, you know, the whole market in my mind. Mm. The report, um, it's not the section you wrote, I should say, but it doesn't seem very positive about the uh, idea of how this might unfold, this new entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ. Um, For example, it says here the proposed organisation in some ways suggests a shuffling, lumbering, zombie-type resurrection of the unlamented NZBC. Such corporate undead are not noted for the agility and nimbleness that uh, Minister Chris Farfoy spoke of when launching the idea of the merger. So not especially positive. Is it fair to say that among the scholars and and yours at AUT and others, your your peers and colleagues, that they're not particularly positive about this idea or confident that it's going to be carried out in a way that might actually create a a new media company that will be good for the uh, public of New Zealand? Look, I can't, of course, you know, vouch for all other people or my, you know, colleagues. But uh, I think there uh, is that uh, fear uh, that uh, what happens to the RNZ uh, Radio New Zealand because uh, it has been publicly funded. It has a public interest uh, charter and mandate, and that is what we think is very, very valuable. Especially now when we have, you know, the the media environment where we have a lot of misinformation uh, spreading. And that public serving the public is really fundamentally important for the democracy. Uh, so I think, you know, we share, quite a lot of people share that view, I think. Just to close, Miria, one thing uh, you said last year, and, and indeed we talked about it, you said, you know, we need a kind of Jeff Bezos type character. You said, mm-hmm. um, come on, where are these wealthy people here? Why are they not interested in backing, backing media? I said, yeah, do we need a local Jeff Bezos? You said, definitely. Um, <laughs> still no sign of that, even though the media has been telling people about the crisis and its importance. Um, you still think that would help? 
Well, uh, yeah, I remember that well. I said that uh, no Bezos has uh, appeared, and uh, I don't think it's going to appear now. Um, but I think you know we have to have them the government. Um, but it could be, couldn't it, that behind the scenes, in a, in a less public way, that some people are. Uh, with with means uh, quietly backing, perhaps with more modest sums and not necessarily taking ownership stakes, but are actually recognising that um, you know the media is precarious. They are putting uh, some sums into outlets that need support. Well, let's see when we finally know, you know, what's happening with the stuff and how that pans out. They will need more money, so let's see if they have some backers. Uh, tell me if you know or hear something. That was Dr. Miriam Lilati, the lead author of the 2020 New Zealand Media Ownership Report, published by the AUT's Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy. Well, as we heard there, the biggest change of ownership in our media this past year was when the chief executive of Stuff, Sinead Boucher, struck a surprising deal to buy the whole company from its Australian owner. Last week, she delivered the 2020 Bruce Jessen Memorial Lecture at Auckland University, exactly six months after that deal became real. She told the audience quite a lot about how Australia's Channel 9 couldn't wait to get rid of our papers, how the deal was done and the difference she thinks local ownership has made. It has felt a a meaningful change for us and it has has given us freedom, we think, to sort of do a lot of the things that we we aspired to do but really didn't... um, couldn't fit in through the lens of a foreign um, corporation who had a different view of the world than us. So what things can they now do at Stuff that they couldn't with the ownership across the Tasman? Well, here on Media Watch last weekend, we heard about one of them, Tamato Pono, Our Truth, an investigation of Stuff's own reporting over 160 years, culminating in an apology to Māori for racial bias in coverage and commentary, and sometimes outright racism. Upon taking control, Sinead Boucher said she wanted staff to have a stake as well as a say in the running of the company. But for now, she's in control of almost 900 staff, most of the country's papers and its biggest news website, and the future of all of them. Oh, Colin, it is like when you think about the fact that it was only seven months ago and so much has changed for everybody since then. But when I think back into those days where, you know, New Zealand started to, you know, the pandemic was brewing overseas. We started um, to feel the effects here before we went into lockdown in terms of for media, you know, you know advertising categories dropping out, dropping out, um, et cetera. And then we went into lockdown. Um, and for us, this context of having an overseas owner who didn't want to own us, they'd been very upfront about that, this process, sort of ongoing process with NZME, and then going into these very uncertain weeks, which were, you know, none of us knew how things were going to play out in any way for the country or globally. Um, You know, I think looking back on that now, that was a very worrying and bleak time. Um, And it's, you know, amazing to think about where we've come from in the last six months, but we were definitely... Um, you know, looking ahead to think, would we be able to survive as a business, as many businesses were? How long was the lockdown going to last? How long was the advertising going to be, you know, gone for? Um, what would our owner do? You know, all those sort of things were um, were swishing around as we were all sitting at our kitchen tables um, trying to run what turned out to be the biggest news year ever as well. Um, which is the other side of the the context for us. While all the business stuff was going on, um, you know, there was so much important news developing that had to be covered really well and the organisation had to be really geared up to do that properly.
Yeah, and all that going on in the background cannot have helped. But I guess it's in a way it's history now because the ownership has changed and the Australians are not part of the picture. Um, I call them the Australians, I should say. It's uh, They didn't really want to own you. They made that clear. Um, but we saw, say, Bauer Media with the magazines, the New Zealand Listener, Women's Weekly and so on. They just dropped them. Uh, head office in Hamburg didn't want to know. And, you know, that was sudden and kind of shocking. How close do you think you were to the Australians doing the same thing? Would they have bailed you out if it looked like you'd needed it? Look, I think it was um, what happened to Bauer titles was a very real possibility for our titles, titles as well. I know that um, was definitely the case. Um, you know, we, um, and in fact, I think the Bauer, um, you know, the Bauer decision probably was um, prompted our owner to have a good uh, a good look at doing something similar here. So I would say we came very close to that. You know, given that this um, the pandemic situation wasn't just affecting New Zealand, the Australian business was going through the same sort of thing where they're really looking at what was going to happen, um, you know, trying to make sure um, we all had enough cash to run through the pandemic. Um, they certainly wouldn't have wanted to bail us out if we needed it. Um, I think they would have moved to wind up the business rather than do that. And um, that, that, could have been those the, days. that could have been the end of newspaper titles in print for... 150 years plus some of them in this country. Yeah, 163 years since our first news, uh, newspaper was published. Um, yeah, it would have been. And who knows what would have happened um, after that, whether any of those would have been revived. Well, at that time, very few people had uh, understood or knew that you were interested in taking the company over. Everyone, you'd spent, you were appointed as chief executive of the company during this, I think, three-year bid uh, between yourselves and NZME, your rivals, publisher of the New Zealand Herald and owner of half the country's radio stations to uh, merge or take over, if we want to put it that way, uh, stuff. Um, so all this going on in the background. They even went to court. I mean, obviously relations soured between the two companies and NZME went to court to try and force this and pressure the government into allowing it to happen in a quick way. Um, in fact, even in that Bruce Jessen Memorial Lecture a uh, week before last, I think you said they were looking to, to buy stuff or stuff your company, uh, you know, and actually run it down in order to acquire it. Um, that must have been pretty unpleasant in the background. Um, it was, um, I don't know that I framed it in quite those words, but it was definitely a sense that um, the longer this process went on, the harder it was for stuff to operate in the market when the context was that, um, you know, we were A, unwanted by one owner and B, the sort of protracted sale and merger processes um, allowed everyone else to kind of construct the narrative about what was happening with us and um, how badly we might have been performing or otherwise. Um, so, you know, I think we... Um, you know, we uh, we knew that we needed to find a new owner for the business because one way or another our Australian owners would um, walk away. And for a long time that seemed that NZME was the most likely, um, uh, you know, and most suitable new owner for us there. But as time went on and we went through the lockdown um, and, you know, the discussions there were really between Nine and NZME. They didn't involve, didn't involve me as the, as the staff chief executive. But it got to the point where, um, you know, Nine rang me up to say that the NZME deal wasn't going to happen and that, you know, that um, probably didn't mean good things for the future of the New Zealand business. 
Um, and it was that that really that phone call that really led me to sort of um, you know think about. I just couldn't stand by and let the business be closed down when it was still a profitable business, when, you know, so much heritage, but also in this year of all years, so much need for that journalism, local journalism and national journalism. Um, we just couldn't let that happen. Um, and, of course, you know, 900 people employed by the business as well. So, um, you know, I rang up Hugh Marks, the, the then nine chief executive, and said, well, look, rather than, um, you know, do that, um, why not give me the business or mm. sell it to me? <laughs> Interesting <laughs> irony that he, he's not in his job anymore across the Tasman and, and you are here um, yeah. with control of the company oh, that he used to own. That's, but, that's media for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it is. But, I mean, we all know the problems that newspaper publishers have had in, in recent years. I mean, the, the sales of the old print product just declining year on year for, I mean, obvious reasons, the internet and everything else. Um, but still... Uh, your business depends to a large extent on that old-fashioned print advertising. It's still a really key core part of the income. Um, but uh, for all of that, I mean, the company actually is profitable, right? And, I mean, extraordinarily, we learn, you know, within the last 10 days or so um, from your staff that um, you'll be actually in a position to pay them a, a bonus of about $1,000 each, I think, for the full-timers, uh, which is astonishing, again, if you think back six or seven months and people fearing for the future of everything. Yeah, look, I think um, there's a lot of things going on there. So while while the sale of the business, you know, we, we were able to bring it back into our local hands, um, it hasn't changed any of the overarching. It's given us certainty of ownership, but it hasn't changed any of the overarching challenges the news industry is facing um, here and globally. And, um, you know, that's really, it's not just the rise of, Digital, it's the kind of impact on um, our business models um, and the market from um, the big tech giants, Google and Facebook, etc. Um, so, you know, we are still print this year. You know, we've seen, um, you know, really strong subscriber performance for print and good advertising performance for print as we've come out of lockdown. But overall, there's still going to be those trends as people start to move more into digital. Um, formats for both consumer products and advertising. So it has to be a rebalancing of our business models um, to look at more direct support from readers, which you can see happening here and and globally. But um, advertising still is and will remain a really critical part of funding that journalism. Yeah, because on the face of it, you were able to pay back staff for the emergency pay cuts you had to put in in the, in the midst of the crisis, which, which which was great and much appreciated, I know, by the staff and regarded as a real good signal of, of good faith. And I'm sure that, that uh, end-of-year bonus that we mentioned it will be the same. But, I mean, look, without... Um, I think $6 million plus of government wage subsidy support uh, and possibly a a, a small slice of, I think, a $50 million package that was media-wide, but perhaps broadcasters benefited from that um, mostly. That was brought in by the government as a COVID immediate uh, cost-cutting measure for media um, in the the lockdown. Um, Without all that, your business really would be in a different position, wouldn't it? Well, I think that wage subsidy... um during the, um, the the lockdown was extremely helpful to us. Um, the you know as we're we're in the process now, you know it's, it's, it's a longer process than I would like of trying to um, build a, a model where the staff can ha- there will be a share of the company set aside for staff. 
Um, and as we're kind of winding through the formal part of that now, I still um, want to make sure that as we've worked really hard and, you know, while we can, that we share the benefits of that back to our staff. And that's where the the $1,000 payment for all of our staff came, I think, before Christmas. And um, I think the other thing we're really hoping, and, you know, we've seen a lot of movement overseas on, is governments trying to move to rein back the market power and the impact of the tech giants, which have made, um, you know, enormous fortunes out of, um, you know, carrying content created by others um, and have um, really... You know, it's really jeopardised um, the ability of most news media to keep strong public interest journalism going. Journalism is needed more than ever to kind of clean up the pollution that comes through those platforms. Yet, you know, ironically, our existence and ability to do that is threatened by the success that they have built, largely off the back of the high quality content that others have created. Well, for some of the reasons you just outlined there, you withdrew from Facebook earlier this year, effectively. At the time, you said just a trial. Um, presumably, almost all the new audience that you could hope to attract will be on some sort of digital platform. You actually need big and powerful tech platforms to build an audience, don't you? Well, it'll be, well, it'll be really interesting because we have a big and powerful platform that has been built off our own. You know, we've got a very high level of direct traffic coming to stuff compared to a lot of other publishers who are probably more heavily reliant on social platforms um, for that kind, of, that kind of audience. But as you say, you know, we want to make sure, first and foremost, that our journalism has the impact it needs to on the people who would, you know, would want to see it or can benefit from seeing it. Talk there, your stance on Facebook and social media platforms, that's one of the things I guess you've been able to do with a free hand as owner. Um, other things you've done uh, this year, introduced a climate section uh, and appointed a specific climate editor and, and journalists. Um, you've launched a new editorial code, Potiaki, a Māori news and comment and uh, content section. And last week on this program, we talked at length about your initiative, uh, Tamato Pono, which is uh, you know an examination of uh, racism and uh, racial bias in reporting, going back all the way to the the foundation of the company's newspapers and looking at um, how things could change in the future. What has been uh, the public response to that? People broadly in support, or has there been a bit of pushback? Because you know it, it was quite something for you know, the audience to have to confront, I guess, as well as uh, yourself and your own journalists. Yeah, look, I think, you know, going into that, you know, it was a, a, probably the one of the biggest sort of um, investigations that we've ever done in our history and the, uh, the sort of examining of our own um, history and role. And I think that was born out of the fact that one of the other things we've been able to do in the new ownership era is being able to set our key KPI for success across the company as growth and public trust in who we are and what we do. You know, we knew that there would be, um, it would polarise people. Certainly on the day that launched, there were a flurry of newspaper cancellations um, from people who just didn't like this idea at all of um, examining what had happened in the past and also apologising to Māori for, um, you know, the harm that our reporting has caused and the perpetuation of negative stereotypes, the silencing of Māori voices. Yeah, one of your, one of your Dominion Anistar. Post reporters actually posted a tweet saying, I've had an elderly or older uh, subscriber on the phone saying he's, he's cancelling the subscription now because of what he called five pages of bullshit you made me read this morning. Um, 
And, yep. uh, you know, she took that down off Twitter. I think figuring uh, it's so, not a good idea to, yeah, to talk about the customers. Was, but was that, that was typical? De- that, was definitely, that wasn't typical, but there was def- definitely a group of those sort of phone calls. I'd say less than 100. Not that that's immaterial. But on the other side, we had a record day, biggest day ever by far, of people signing up to be digital contributors and voluntary payments for, you know, supporters through stuff. And, um, and we have ha- had an outpouring of incredible support and reaction and thoughtful kind of, you know, letters and comment from the public at large and some amazing um, scenes in our local newsrooms too where, um, you know, groups from either the local iwi um, or just individual um, Māori have just come into our newsroom to speak openly and frankly about um, what this move meant to them and how they hoped it really reset things for, you know, a new era um, of partnership um, and participation. And, you know, we we are really holding ourselves to account and we hope others also do as we go um, ahead to make sure we, you know, we get it right. But, but is um, there a chilling a effect way. on that, though? You might, I mean, there was also oh, this awkward no. interaction with Carmen Parahi being interviewed on Morning Report and being asked, well, what about a story published just the day before about well, one of your journalists got to do a kind of ride-along with Oranga Tamariki social workers and then basically, well, where, where's the... Um, Where's the Māori or Pacifica perspective in that? You know, it was an organisation. Yeah, that I, know, to I know. And that was a bit unfair and common to be asked, you know, one of our journalists to be asked to speak on behalf of the whole group and about a story that um, she had no knowledge of or involvement in. That story was one of many stories from many perspectives that have been covered around Oranga Tamariki, including, um, I would, you know, that had been largely critical of Oranga Tamariki's approach, and that was just one story. So we are not going to go down a path. I don't see it as having a chilling effect, Um, and I can see this in our newsroom, where we think deeper and we think harder about what we're doing, but we are not pulling back from being challenging, from asking hard questions, from looking at things through lots of different perspectives, But I think what we've been guilty of in the past, and so has much of the media, has been giving too much weight to a certain group of perspectives and voices and not enough to others. And that's what we're really seeking to address there. And in a stuff article about uh, the launch of Tamato Pono, you yourself were quoted uh, about uh, Maori reporters in your newsrooms, the presence they have. Um, and you said, look, you know, there aren't enough. And, you know, you said we, we pledge to address and redress that. Do you consider you have nearly enough Maori reporters or not nearly enough? No, I don't think we have nearly enough, and I don't think there are nearly enough in the industry at large. And so we do have specific plans to address that. But I think one one of the fundamental things that are, are going to address that is we need to make sure journalism and um, you know a company like ours is actually an attractive option for um, Maori school or university level or someone looking to change career to want to come into. It's not just about what training pro- programs do we offer or how do we seek out and attract um, you know, more Maori journalists from the field into our company. That's a really critical thing for us to change. Let's finish by considering what might be around the corner in 2021, um, maybe Based on what's happened in 2020, that's a bit of a mistake to try and work out what's around the corner. Uh, But one thing that is on the map, the government having been re-elected, signalling that they do want to create 
a public media entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ. Uh, in a sense, uh, none of your business because it's uh, outside of the realm of stuff. However, it, do you think it would change the market and is it something you have views on? It is, as you say, none of my business in one sense, but in another sense, I think for all of the um, commercial type of media companies that are operating, the merger of, say, TVNZ and RNZ and, or creating a single you know, public entity that potentially can operate in both a, a, you know, a commercial and non-commercial way is definitely something we're worried about um, in terms of the impact on us, um, you know, not only in that competition for um, attention, but also you know, a, a well-funded, well-resourced entity that could be competing for those advertising dollars as well that may seek to you know, enter markets that are currently um, you know, more strongly held by um, commercial media companies. On the other side, I'm really, you know, anything that is about investing in local content, local journalism, local voices is is really um, something that's very worthwhile and something we we all need to focus on. It's just how that manifests itself is something we'll be keeping an eye on <laughs> as, um, you know, uh, over the next sort of year, two, three, I don't know, however long that takes to come to, come to fruition. You mentioned earlier this apparent uh, government policy of um, money for journalism, local content, at-risk journalism, so on. We believe it's been talked about $25 million a year over three years, contestable money to be uh, apportioned by uh, the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air. That's obviously something you would be hoping uh, to get a slice of. Um, However... One thing uh, is your um, rivals, New Zealand Herald, NZME, at this point they were probably hoping that they would have taken you over, um, but that didn't happen. Uh, looks like they might be coming for you in a way, launching localised homepages, uh, talking about strengthening reporting in uh, Wellington and Christchurch. Great if they're expanding a bit, but it uh, looks like they really are trying to expand their national reach, which would be trying to grab the audiences that, um, that you covered. No, I'm sure they are, and bring it on. I mean, that kind of can, competition is healthy, isn't it? And um, can only in, inspire all of us to do better and be better. Um, so, you know, all, all power to them. We're ready for it. Would you actually welcome the likes of, you know, a, a Jeff Bezos kind of character or something like that? Because in other countries where they've acknowledged there's a bit of a crisis in news and media sustainability, people with means have come to the party. doesn't seem to have happened in New Zealand, at least not in a public way. Do you think that's something that you would like to see, if not for yourself, for the rest of the media? Any progress that is made um, that's geared towards helping to sustain and invest and nourish journalism is great. But not only are there very few Jeff Bezoses in terms of you know his wealth and, and impact, um, you know, I've I've had no shortage of people coming to me in the last six months and saying, I could be New Zealand's Jeff Bezos. But when you, you know, you talk to them, uh, you know, they rapidly lose interest when you realise that the one thing that is not up for grabs is any kind of control or influence on the editorial agenda. <laughs> really interesting. Ah, so, <laughs> so they, you know, there are people out it, there that want to contribute that's, uh, to, that's to right. what you're actually doing, but they want a stake. Yeah, and, and not, you know, that's... Um, they may not realise that or straight up for themselves, but as you start talking to them, that's really clear that um, they are interested because they're unhappy with something. And it may be they're unhappy with the government, it may be they're unhappy with some kind of work that you're doing, or they want to change, or they want to influence, and that is absolutely not up for sale um, in any way in terms of us. So 
our team, our editorial um, team and our newsroom and the stories they do are and always will be completely independent of any kind of commercial interference at all. Um, so, you know, I'd rather um, say goodbye to someone with deep pockets than let that kind of interference creep into our company. But at the moment, you know, we so I don't have any backers or other funders or anything lined up. We haven't needed that. We've been stuff has always been a self-funding company, and um, you know, as long as as we can continue that, great. But it kind of depends on the scale of our ambition or what happens in the next year or two, you know, in terms of what other um, funding we might need to raise, what shareholders we might want to bring in, um, whether or not we want to kind of look look to list the company or any of those things that are open, you know, who knows. Um, but at the moment, um, it's just me and the team and our company <laughs> doing, uh, doing as best we can um, for the, the things we want to do. Mm, these are the sort of fascinating conversations you have when you're not just the chief executive, but the owner. OK, well, we'll see what unfolds in uh, 2021. But thanks for coming in today and reflecting on uh, the year that was 2020. Um, so, yeah, who knows? Who knows <laughs> next year? But I'm sure we'll speak again. But thanks so much for coming in for Sunday morning today. My pleasure. Thank you, Colin. That's Sinead Boucher, Chief Executive and Owner of Stuff, this country's biggest publisher of online news and newspapers. And you can hear more from her chat with me about the year in which she brought the company back into local ownership, how Stuff coped with the chaos COVID-19 wrought on the media in 2020, and what we might see in the media in 2021, and our full conversation. That's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, the RNZ app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again next Sunday with our final show for the year here on RNZ National.